Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Happy Wednesday, everyone, and welcome to Jenna Ellis in the morning. We have a great, great hour for you today. I'm so excited for uh, my guest that will be on later in the show, Chad Robichaux. He is a uh, U.S. veteran and uh, has an amazing story about going in uh, to Afghanistan in the wake of the Biden withdrawal and uh, going in intentionally to save uh, his uh, translator that had been working with him for years and eventually through seeing what was actually going on on the ground, uh, he and a number of his team ended up saving thousands of lives. So he's going to be here to tell that story. And we also get to hear from Aziz, his translator, and that perspective. So uh, I am really excited for this interview and for you to hear from him and uh, that perspective of what was really going on and not just what the mainstream media is, is telling us, because all of us sit back and think that we have to see what's on the news and that hopefully they're telling us the truth. But with so many things, especially over the last few years, we know that the mainstream media tells a narrative more often than they tell the truth and the facts of the matter. So we always want to get to the facts and the truth, and especially people who have been on the ground or in the room and can tell us the truth. So turning to some of those uh, headlines that uh, hopefully are, are from the perspective of fact and truth, we always have to be concerned concerned with that. Of course, the World Economic Forum and their meeting in Davos is still going on this week. And the attendees of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, warned that the world is facing what they're calling a quote-unquote polycrisis, a multiple multinational crisis that are interconnected and exacerbate each other. And so the Epic Times reported that the World Economic Forum chairman Klaus Schwab announced the kickoff of the 53rd annual meeting of political leaders, corporate executives, and activists in Davos, declaring that the summit will focus on a rededicating of its members to a progressive climate and social justice agenda in the midst of what Schwab described as, quote, an unprecedented multiple crises. So this is incredibly important for us to follow. There's a lot of chatter on Twitter as far as the A-listers not attending Davos, what that could and could not mean. Some people think that this is just a show and the attention on the World Economic Forum is a distraction from what we should be paying attention to. I say we can pay attention to it all and we should be paying attention to it all because this is the outspoken agenda, they're not even trying to hide it, of where exactly the progressive globalist elitists are heading. And speaking of not wanting people to get facts and truth and not wanting us to understand what's really going on, uh, Michael Schellenberger was on a Glenn Beck, I believe yesterday, commenting on the World Economic Forum and why the global elites are so frustrated with Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and the rise of alternative media platforms that actually get out the truth and get out other perspectives so that we don't feel that we are just siloed in a think tank and 
um, and, and feel like we are just in an echo chamber that is spouting one particular viewpoint and feel silent and feel alone in our own perspectives. This is why alternative media is one of the greatest threats. And truth, of course, is the greatest threat to propaganda. So here's what Michael Schellenberger said yesterday regarding the World Economic Forum in the context of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Listen to this. The World Economic Forum, when you actually learn what it's promoting, is wildly unpopular. That's why the change in the media environment, you know, and it starts, of course, with radio, and, but the Internet really takes it to another level, mm-hmm. means that the old regime um, struggles constantly. So why are they always talking about disinformation? It's because people like us are out here explaining yes. that actually that is what they want. They want, they want the bugs the not owning anything, and a move to low-energy living. Great Reset, remember, was always just like, we're going to stop using fossil fuels and nuclear and reliable energy, and we're going to use unreliable solar and wind, and, and only whenever that is possible because of the weather. That was what the Great Reset was, and fundamentally the organization is about what they call sustainability, what I think we would call basically making everybody much poorer, So this is a fascinating perspective on the World Economic Forum and how they're using this term misinformation, but also uh, poly crises and the uh, rise of a a multinational, multi-problematic scenario that, of course, we learned through the COVID crisis, the world system and the elites are trying to use as a pretext to weaponize executive power and emergency power to compel us to follow their agenda and follow their uh, preferred outcomes. And so what we learned through COVID, particularly in the context of the judicial fights and the court cases, was how much so many of the Democrats in America and their executive uh, agencies, whether it was um, Joe Biden and his administration trying to force the mandates on the federal level, or someone like uh, Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer uh, in Michigan, and other governors on that level, or even uh, mayors, state and local officials, who were trying on purpose to use COVID as a pretext to continue to re-up and harness their emergency powers and say, for the good of the whole, we are going to force you to comply with our unconstitutional uh, overreaching power edicts. And so when we're looking at what the World Economic Forum is doing and when they're using this term misinformation, that became a huge focal point on Twitter and on social media to shut down any sort of narrative around COVID that wasn't what the government wanted you and I to say, what they wanted others to say. They didn't want expressions that were anything other than the propaganda that they were suggesting is truthful. And when other social media and alternative platforms rise up and challenge that narrative, that becomes a threat to their power. And so as Elon Musk has taken over Twitter and we're seeing that he's allowing voices that were previously banned off of that platform for uh, no other reason than going against the narrative of the government, 
then that has become a threat to these global elites. And so the not only the World Economic Forum, but the Democrats are now trying to recalibrate. And I think it's very important that we look at what the World Economic Forum and the meeting in Davos uh, is, is discussing and how they're using these terms like uh, pulley crisis and using climate change and some of these other things like uh, and the terms misinformation to further their agenda. I think that they were completely surprised at how the world fought back against the COVID narrative. Once everybody uh, kind of recalibrated and and got their bearings and said, okay, we are going to push back against this narrative because we're seeing that other types of, um, of drugs are working other than the vaccine. We're seeing that some of these uh, other methods to combat the virus are actually helpful. And we saw in real time how the government tried to shut down any of those discussions and a lot of the doctors who were promoting other solutions. And so they're going to uh, have to recalibrate their agenda because I, I really think that COVID was a precursor and a test run to see how far they could get in weaponizing emergency authorization power on the state and federal level to compel compliance from individuals and override our fundamental constitutionally protected rights in favor of what they deemed in the best interests of the individual and in the best interests of the collective. And we have to always stand up, regardless of whether or not uh, you th- what we think you or I think about the vaccine itself, I don't mind the availability of it. That's fine. Having that available and saying this is a uh, this is a test. This is something that is a, a newly created, um, whether or not you even want to call it a vaccine. This is an experimental medication that uh, people who, uh, in consultation with their doctor, think that they want to take. I have no problem with that. What I have a problem with is the government mandating that and overriding the individual's will and our informed consent to say, I get to determine whether or not that experimental medication is best for me, is best for my children. And the attempt to weaponize that and to forcibly inject individuals with an experimental medication is wildly unconstitutional, but it was being run as the only solution. And if you and I didn't comply with that, then somehow we are propagating misinformation. We are then uh, the evil ones, according to the left and according to the government's arguments. But thankfully, we had a Supreme Court that stood up to this and said, uh, no, this is still an individual's right to determine our own uh, decision making in the context of healthcare. So, when we're talking about climate change, when we're talking about uh, these crises, when they're talking about um, fossil fuel energy, when they're talking about this social justice agenda, we need to be very attuned to what the left is saying because we cannot just always play defense as conservatives. If we are always on the defense and we are not advancing the cause of freedom, then conservatives will always lose ground. And we tend to, as conservatives, be more on the defense because we are protecting something. And that is inherently a defensive posture rather than a... a 
progressive or advancing posture, but we need to advance and promote and further and exercise the cause of liberty so that if we just hold the line on defense, we won't recede and always lose ground because the left is always going to try to attack freedom. They're going to try to attack liberty. They're going to try to attack the U.S. Constitution in all variety of ways. They're going to try to weaponize not only the Justice Department, like what we have seen over the last couple of years, they're going to try to weaponize any provision of the U.S. Constitution that they can to ironically use the Constitution to tear down the Constitution, like what we've seen with these lawsuits that are trying to get Republicans disqualified from office simply because they exercised their own power to object to electors in the context of the 2020 election, or using the impeachment clause to try to remove a sitting president that they objected to politically. So we have to always be very wise and aware of what is going on on the left and what their outcome oriented goal is. Because if we know the outcome, then we can look at what they're saying very openly and see that the pieces are being put together and we can start to see their strategy toward their goal. And then we can, as conservatives, better suit our strategy to continue to protect liberty and protect the Constitution in its actual context, which is to preserve and protect the rights that God gives us. So it's very important. I don't think that this is just a head fake or a distraction on what's going on with the World Economic Forum. And it's also not just a conspiracy theory. Um, so many times this this uh, propaganda that is weaponized as misinformation and saying that people uh, like you and me that want to talk about these issues are just dealing in conspiracy theories. Well, that is the same type of term that is a pejorative that's used for interested Christian conservatives who want to get to fact and truth and who want to know what's actually going on, the same way that they call us all kinds of other uh, terms and names that are, are used just to try to silence us. And so I don't mind if people call me a conspiracy theorist. I don't mind anything that people call me because I know it's not true. And that's not going to silence me. It's not going to stop me from seeking fact and truth and having the right informed perspective biblically based on what's going on in our world. So we need to be paying attention to the World Economic Forum. We need to be paying attention to what's happening here in the United States. We need to be paying attention on the state and local level to what is going on through our state legislatures as well. We need to be informed and engaged citizens. And that's why we are here each and every morning on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. We will be right back. Let's see, if something costs less, but people are happier with it, that sounds like something to look into, and that's MediShare. Maybe you've heard switching to MediShare to pay for healthcare can save the typical family 500 bucks a month, and that's huge, but it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan, double 
MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge nationwide PPO network. So, yeah, you can save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. So if you're self-employed or part of the gig economy or you just want to plan you're happy with, you can call right now and get a price within two minutes. A very, very smart use of two minutes. Here's the number you need. 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. 833-44-BIBLE. The following is not an actor, but a real-life story from Trinity Debt Management. The credit card debt happened when my daughter was born. I was using one credit card account to roll over into another credit card account, and it was snowballing. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. When I first called Trinity, the representative understood the need based on the situation. There were great people to work with. From the first phone call that I made, they had me on a track to mitigate the credit card debt. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. Working with Trinity gave me the ability to save thousands of dollars. My name's Doug, and thanks to Trinity, I'm debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. That's 1-800-788-1813. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Stern. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make the switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. Dwayne Johnson is best known as The Rock. He's a Hollywood megastar, also known for his work as a pro wrestler. But when he was a kid growing up in Hawaii, he was dirt poor. And as a teenage boy, he made some pretty bad decisions in his life, not the least of which was shoplifting candy bars from a 7-Eleven. The Rock says he used to steal sticker bars every day when he was a kid, and decades later, he knew it was time to right that wrong. So The Rock returned to that 7-Eleven and plopped down enough cash to buy every Snickers bar in the store. He also gave the store clerk a tip, telling the cashier to give the candy to any kid who might look like a potential shoplifter. The Rock said you can't change your past, but every once in a while you can make things right with a little bit of redeeming grace. Be sure to get a copy of my book, Our Daily Biscuit Devotions with a Drawl, available at ToddSturge.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. And a few quick top headlines for you this morning. So yesterday, the inaugural celebration of the governor of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania occurred. And the invitation to that inauguration of the Democrat Josh Shapiro had a line that was underlined and bolded that said, don't leave home without it. A valid ID is required for entry into the event. So a photo ID is required for entry to the Democrat inauguration in Pennsylvania, but not to vote for that same person being inaugurated. 
Hmm, really weird. Apparently, it's only racist when the Democrats don't want voter ID to vote, but it's totally not racist when they require it for inauguration of that same person. So I'd ask you also to pray next week for Mark Houck's trial. Uh, That's beginning next week with the Thomas More Society and our friends there. He is the pro-life dad that faces 11 years in prison for protesting abortion. The Biden administration's prosecution of Mark Houck begins in federal court in Philadelphia next week, and he faces, again, 11 years in prison and fines for peacefully protesting abortion. This has been a story that I've been following, and my friends at the Thomas More Society are representing him. Please pray for uh, the the outcome in that case to be strong and for uh, Mark Houck to experience the justice system truly, truly being just. Uh, A few other headlines this morning. Harvard Med will no longer participate in a university ranking. So according to the Washington Times, Harvard Medical School will no longer provide data to the U.S. News and World Report for its surveys and rankings of best medical schools. Its dean announced yesterday a decision that echoes that of prominent law schools in rejecting the influential ranking system in recent weeks. So according to the Faculty of Medicine at Harvard University, who wrote in a message, they said that the system creates, quote, perverse incentives for institutions to report misleading or inaccurate data. So, of course, my perspective on this is that we are trying uh, all across the progressive left to tear down our institutions and systems in favor of a diversity quota rather than merit-based objective guidelines. So going to law school myself, I had to take the law school admissions test, which is simply a threshold for students to see if we have an aptitude for law school and won't spend three years and then not pass the bar or not be able to effectively practice. So to have these types of uh, standards that continue to be eroded simply shows that the progressive agenda is not interested in merit. They're not interested in hard work. They're far, far more interested in what they call diversity, which is not a good thing for those of us who end up needing lawyers, needing doctors, needing good airline pilots, needing people to be actually competent at their job. All right, let's turn to my first guest now, Chad Robichaud. He is a a United States veteran and recently published the new book, Saving Aziz. The title is How the Mission to Help One Became a Calling to Rescue Thousands from the Taliban. So, Chad, my friend, good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Jenna. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, this is an incredible story that I've talked with you about a few times. So, uh, so bring us through what exactly happened in the aftermath of Uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, why that was botched, and why you went back in initially to save Aziz and who he is. Well, uh, you know, when I first heard the the president announce, and he started early on within the second day in office, he's going to do a full withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, Myself, and I think everybody understands military strategy, a global military strategy, became very concerned. One, is that America was being sold a lie that we were in this 20-year war and this endless war, and we had to get out because American sons and daughters were dying. This wasn't true. I mean, we had uh, 2,500 to 4,000 troops there participating in an international effort with allies from around the world that were supporting and advising the Afghan National Army to fight the Taliban in the mountains of Afghanistan and keep the world a safer place because of that. And it was working. 
Uh, we hadn't been conventional war with the Taliban since 2018. Uh, additionally, historically, we haven't left wars like this before. We've always kept the contingent force at World War II. We still have 80,000 troops in Japan, 40,000 in Germany, 35,000 in South Korea. So this was a disaster in the making. We had Americans there uh, as you know, participating as uh, aid workers and teachers and doctors and, and missionaries. We had uh, we had uh, thousands of allies, seventy five thousand of our allies that fought besides us for twenty years. And the government is and our government is not negotiating with our international partners. They're not negotiating with the government that we put in place for twenty years. They're only negotiating with the enemy of twenty years, the Taliban. And, uh, it, and all to give up the most strategic place on the globe, uh, which is which is Bagram Air Force Base between Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China. So I was extremely concerned about that from a national security standpoint. On a personal standpoint, I, w- I was heartbroken for my friend Aziz, who I did eight deployments with. Uh, we worked independently together as a two-man team in the mountains of Afghanistan and, and Pakistan uh, to put our assaulters on target to capture, kill bad guys. And, and uh, you know, he's my friend, uh, my teammate, my friend. He saved my life multiple times. I... I mean, I, I didn't go back to base, and he went home. We were not operating. I went to his home, and his wife, Hatra, cooked this, the first warm meal after after weeks and months in the mountains. And I held his kids, Mashud and Mashuda, when they were born. He's family to me. And uh, so I made a decision to put a small team together to go in and get Aziz, in, in spite of our government not doing the right thing for our allies and for American citizens there. And that ultimately morphed into an effort. Uh, where God just burdened our hearts to do the right thing for so many people, and uh, and God opened the doors to do miraculous things to piece and orchestrate this operation together, and we not only saved disease, his wife and six kids, but seventeen thousand others. That is so incredible, and it's just a testament to how God can use. Uh, one person to have a mission that blossoms into something that is extraordinary, that ultimately saves so many more lives than what you even anticipated. So there has been, Chad, a a lot of uh, talk and speculation for why the Biden administration chose to alert the Taliban to withdrawal date and ultimately botched this because they left uh, billions of dollars of equipment. They gave them that date uh, so that the Taliban actually didn't have just kind of a withdrawal on a schedule that uh, that was based on demarcations, but rather on the calendar. And so what it from your level of expertise, obviously being um, a former force recon Marine, what was the Biden agenda for this? Why would he have made that kind of decision? Well, I mean, uh, and you're absolutely right, Jenna. Anybody that would give a date in that terms uh, is setting themselves up for failure. You know, when you give a date, then the Taliban only has to wait. If you gave terms and said, and again, I don't agree with the withdrawal at all, but if you would have gave terms and said, uh, we will leave when we get every American out, every one of our allies out, and we'll get all, we get all of our uh, everything turned over, and then we get 80, our $85 billion in equipment and technology out, uh, then that would have been something I would disagree with the withdrawal, but it would have been something that would have probably been a successful withdrawal and American lives would have been spared. But he didn't do that. He gave a date and he, and he, when he asked for more time, the Taliban said no, and he cowered down to it. And this created a scenario that, that, uh, that cost literally cost American service members lives. I believe it cost American lives. It was left Americans that who are still trapped in Afghanistan. And, uh, and although the whole time they were lying to American people about, uh, who was trapped there. And, uh, and it also left 75,000 of, of our Afghan allies that fought by us for 20 years and were entitled, contractually entitled, to a path to citizenship along with their families. Uh, so as to why he, he would have done that, there is no 
there is no explanation. In fact, the question has never even been asked to him, much less answered, as to why he would negotiate with the Taliban and not our allies and not and, and not our Gaf- the Afghan government we put in place, but only negotiate with the enemy. That question has never been asked to him uh, by the in any kind of investigation or the media, uh, but for that matter. And uh, it's an important question. The only people that had anything to gain out of our withdrawal from Afghanistan were the world, the enemies of the United States. The United States didn't have anything to gain. Afghanistan didn't have anything to gain. The only people that had anything to gain was the, the enemies of the United States. China, wanted the, the rights to those Hindu Kush mountains, the minerals in the Hindu Kush mountains, the lithium there. China wanted to buy uh, sanctioned Uran- Iranian oil, which the only thing that's between China and, uh, and the, the Iranian sanctioned oil was the U.S. military in Afghanistan. Uh, Pakistan, ISI, and China, and Iran all wanted access to the Bagram Air Force Base because, again, it's the most strategic place in the globe in today's current world, and, and now they do. And uh, I'm sure everyone, every one of our enemies wanted access to our $85 billion in equipment and technology. And, uh, and the Taliban, what they get for it, they got to be a have barbaric control over people again. Forty million uh, uh, Afghan people are suffering right now, uh, starving, being forced into Sharia law. 20 million women and little girls are being sexually enslaved every day uh, and having their rights stripped away. Just last week, they've been told they, that women cannot uh, receive health care from a male doctor, but yet women can't be doctors and women can't be educated. And so women's health care has been totally taken away in addition to them being sexually enslaved and sold as, as young as nine years old. Uh, so everyone, uh, everyone on the right side of, of this had nothing to gain, America or Afghanistan. But on the other side, our enemies of the world had everything to gain. And we, we need answers to why the president would have made this decision. And I'm so thankful to see uh, uh, Congressman McCarthy, uh, as, a, as a speaker, say that there's going to be investigations in this. I'm less optimistic to believe there'll be any accountability, but at least the questions will be asked. You're right. They absolutely should be asked. I'm talking to Chad Robichaud, who wrote this amazing book that's a remarkable story about going in uh, back into Afghanistan and ultimately saving uh, 17,000 people. And, and Chad, I have said since the entire story from Afghanistan uh, originated and we were watching this unfold on the news that because there was not a legitimate interest for the United States to do this, and as you've mentioned, only our enemies have benefited, I hope that these investigations from Congress will lead to the filing of impeachment papers uh, for Joe Biden. And not just because he is a political enemy or he's a Democrat or I just don't like him and I don't think he's a competent president, but I think that uh, what happened in Afghanistan and those decisions and for the reasons that they were likely made, uh, that would fulfill the legal basis under the U.S. Constitution to impeach Joe Biden. And there are a number of reasons that he should be impeached and removed, and this is just one of them. And so as you're looking, though, at, at this story, um, and, and looking back on on what happened, um, walk me through just the very beginning. I mean, you're seeing this unfold. You are uh, looking at this from the perspective of a retired Marine and, and just mind boggled at this. How did you uh, contact Aziz and know that he was still there and actually get this together in a matter of days to go in and start this rescue mission? Well, I had been in, been remained in contact with Aziz uh, because he's he, he is a friend and I consider him family, and uh, and we had been working on his SIV visa for six years. Uh, and again, this is a guy who had access to top secret information, who was highly vetted, polygraphed, 
served with our highest levels of special operations for 15 years. And this nine-month, supposedly nine-month process that was promised to them, he had been in this process for six years. And uh, and so I had little hope, uh, even with connections that I do have in Congress and Senate, that we were able to get, able to get him out. So I knew that I would have to go in and my, myself and, and put a team together to get him out. And so I called uh, some people who I'm very close to and trust and from the special operations community that had some specific skill sets uh, that I needed to put a team together. Uh, and we had it originally ended up with about 12 people. And uh, and as we are uh, planning this operation, we we uh, we looked around the room and said, man, we have some of the most talented you know special operations veterans in the world right right here in this room with a willingness and a burden that God put on each of our hearts to go help these people who couldn't help themselves. And why are we just going to get Aziz, his wife, and six kids. That's great, but there's these 3,500 orphans over here that are that are uh, being left behind. Uh, there's going to be Americans and, and women uh, that will be sexually enslaved and children and Christians that will be persecuted, other interpreters. Let's get as many people as we can. And I believe in, that decision was just a, a burden, a, a kind of a obedience to the, that burden that God had in our hearts. And beyond that, Jenna, I've gotten a lot of credit for this. Uh, I've gotten uh, some awards already. Congress recognized us. Uh, Glenn Beck gave us, remember he uh, he had uh, gave us the Bonhoeffer uh, Angel Award. But um, you know, in the Bible it says in in Second Corinthians eleven thirty, if you're going to boast, boast in your weakness. Uh, certainly, uh, I can boast in my weakness here because I don't have the capability, the skills. I'm not smart enough to pull something like this off. Uh, this was totally uh, beyond that decision to be obedient. This was totally. Uh, a modern-day miracle, uh, what happened was a series of events that I can only be described as divine in nature. Um, we, 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 After making the decision, Sarah Verardo called the Joint Chiefs and got permission from the Joint Chiefs for us as civilians to go in the DOD-controlled HKI airport to land aircraft and conduct rescues outside the wire. Uh, anybody who knows anything about the military knows that that's a impossibility. It would be, certainly be a closed door, but they said yes and gave us permissions to be there. Secondly, we knew we had to have the ability to move people without visas, only applicants, SIV applicants, P1, P2 applicants. We had to be able to move people without visas from one country to another. Not the United States, because not, we're not the State Department, but from one country to another. You can't move people without a visa from country to country. Uh, you know, that's called human trafficking, and that's only allowed in Laredo, Texas, by the way. Uh, so, uh, I mean, <laughs> We, in the real world, we had to do it the right way, and so we made we uh, we contacted the United Arab Emirates. We had connections with the royal family. We told them our plan. They literally rolled out the red carpet for us, gave us access to the humanitarian center, and in addition to bringing you know doctors and medical uh, medical support and and uh, food and lodging for for uh, up up until now, there's still some there now, and um, and, and then they said we'll give you two C-17 planes to fly in and evacuate people. And then we got a call from our friend, uh, Glenn Beck, who, uh, who said, I just went on radio and raised money. I thought I was gonna raise a few thousand dollars, but I raised millions and I don't know what to do with it. And I said, I'm exactly what we're gonna do with it. We're gonna, we're gonna charter aircraft and, and Rudy Atala from Mercury One Ministry stepped in to help us from Glenn's team. And, and uh, all each of those things, if any one of them wouldn't happen, uh, it would have been it would have been a disaster when they able to do it. But because God stepped wow. in and orchestrated all that, we were able to save 17,000 people. This is incredible, and what an amazing story of God's faithfulness and using someone like you who simply, as you said, you you responded to the call to be obedient, and that is what it's all about. So get Chad's book, uh, Saving Aziz, and we will be right back here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning talking to Aziz himself.
Isaiah says, we shall beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall we study war anymore. And I believe that day is definitely coming that Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will bring us prosperity, harmony, but that's not the world we live in yet. Tune in to The Awakening, weekdays at noon central on American Family Radio. Hannah's Heart, a half-hour program specifically designed to encourage Christian couples walking through infertility and miscarriage. This is not a show that's going to promise you a certain outcome, but this is a show that says, however God answers your cry, we know that He's enough. Hannah's Heart with Ann Cockrell and Kendra White each Saturday afternoon at 5 Central on American Family Radio. You can find the podcast at AFR.net. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. Apostle Paul penned his second epistle to Timothy, now an elder in the church at Ephesus, in about 64 or 65 A.D., while imprisoned in Rome, awaiting his imminent execution under Nero. In warning Timothy about the coming perilous times, marked by the increased anti-Christian persecution in the Roman Empire in 64 A.D., Paul directed Timothy to his speech and his feet. In speech, Paul gave Timothy priceless biblical instruction. In feet, Paul left Timothy a legacy of lifestyle. Christ's following demands consistency between speech and feet. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. The new frontier in abortion has turned to the home front with the abortion pill accounting for over 50% of all abortions. Preborn pregnancy clinics stand with women in crisis in their darkest hour and bring hope and life. After Marissa took the abortion pill, she immediately regretted it, but Preborn was there for her. Look at that baby. Look how beautiful he is. By the amazing grace of God, this baby was saved, but there are so many more who need our help. Would you join with Preborn and AFR today and help rescue 4,000 babies' lives? One ultrasound session costs $28, and $140 will sponsor five ultrasounds. Any gift will help. $100, $200, $1,000. Call 877-616-2396. That's 877-616-2396. Or donate securely at AFR.net. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning. I'm Jenna Ellis, and we are talking with Chad Robichaud, who wrote this amazing book uh, called Saving Aziz. It is the incredible true story of the botched Afghan withdrawal and how uh, Chad said in the last segment that he simply was obedient to what God asked him to do. He was faithful, and God incredibly used him and his team beyond any of his wildest dreams to save 17,000 people out of Afghanistan. This is an incredible testimony, and I think uh, something that can encourage each and every one of us that we may not be prepared or have the skill set to do what God is calling us to do, but if we are simply obedient to his call and go where he sends us, look at what God can do. And then it is all credit 
to our Lord. And so many times in, in my life, I have thought I am not at all capable to go into these places or do these things that God is calling me. But an amazing thing happens when you are simply faithful to God who has first and foremost been faithful to us, then your trust in the Lord builds. And I was just telling someone at an event last night that over the last few years of of my life, the main lesson that I have learned and how I've grown in my faith and what I would tell everyone else, I'm telling all of you today as well, is that I wish that I could go back and tell my former self from five years, 10 years, 15 years ago, trust God more sooner. And that has been a lesson that God continues to teach me. So uh, Saving Aziz, this is this incredible story of uh, the mission in Afghanistan. And I'm so thrilled to have uh, Aziz, who was Chad Robichaud's uh, former interpreter, joining us on the line. So um, Aziz, welcome to Jenna Ellison the morning. And I I just want to ask you, first of all, how are you doing? How is your family doing? Um, you know, you're here in the United States. So how, how has everything been since uh, all of this has happened? Uh, good morning, Jen. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, to talk to you. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, <clears throat> uh, we are doing fine. I have been traveling with Chad. Uh, I'm in New York. Uh, we were doing the book tour, uh, families uh, back in uh, Texas, uh, Magnolia. They're doing great. Uh, my daughters are going to school. My sons are going to school, too. Uh, they have already made friends. Uh, and uh, my daughters are also going to the uh, martial arts at Taekwondo, uh, a unique opportunity that God has uh, gifted them here in the United States which is the only <clears throat> free uh, land of um, all kinds of uh, rights and freedoms, that uh, it was one of their wishes from their childhood. And um, my older daughter is also, uh, she's working at the, one of the coffee shops near the house in Magnolia. And uh, <clears throat> they are all happy, and uh, by the grace of God, uh, we are doing all uh, great Uh, So fantastic to hear, and that is so wonderful, and I'm so thankful that uh, the Lord has provided this pathway for your daughters to come to the United States and for uh, for you all to experience uh, the freedom that hopefully we will continue to protect and preserve in this country. And so for people who who aren't yet familiar with your story, and I hope that everyone will read this book um, and and this just amazing testament to the grace of the Lord, um, take me back to how you first met uh, Chad and how your relationship developed. Uh, and he mentioned you saved his life multiple times and you've been through a lot together. So how did you meet him? What was that like? Uh, well, <clears throat> I actually, uh, it was the first uh, black era of Taliban at that time. Back in the 90s, I was uh, uh, an English teacher. I owned my own uh, private uh, English course. I trained about 800 students. And because of that, uh, the Taliban wanted to put me in jail in that time. And uh, I had to um, run away and punch this uh, Taliban guy on the face and his nose start bleeding. And long story short, I ended up <clears throat> staying in exile in United Arab Emirates, Dubai. And when I noticed the United States military presence in Afghanistan uh, after 9-11, uh, the, then I came back and um, took the test at Kabul Military Training Center. 
I became an interpreter for the uh, third special forces. I worked there for one year. After working one year, the, my American uh, colleagues, they promoted me, sent me to the U.S. Embassy. Uh, from uh, 2003 to 2004, I worked for another year. There was a special project called the Anti-Terrorism Assistance. I worked as a cultural advisor and uh, chief interpreter. Then uh, they saw something in me. They recommended me and promoted me to this uh, JSOC Special Operation Project in 2004. And that was exactly when I met Chad over there and some other American colleagues, and we served together. It was one of the mornings. Uh, I came from house to the office. I saw Chad, uh, very disciplined, sharp, and, uh, you know, uh, he was the uh, recon, and uh, we traveled to different uh, sites that were belonged to the um, business operation that we were doing. And he kind of uh, did a survey and, you know, took some notes and did some improvements. And then... Uh, <clears throat> It was uh, one of the evenings that I was about to leave office for the destination of my house. Uh, Chad called me. He's like, hey, brother, are you still there? Please uh, come to my office before you go. Talk to my wife, Kathy. At that time, uh, Chad was using this uh, Yahoo Messenger. And uh, I came to his office. And for me, it was um, something like uh, very unique. To, you know, talking from behind the Yahoo Messenger, which I never seen before, and talking to this uh, beautiful lady, Kathy Robichaux, and uh, she's uh, after talking uh, greetings and saying hello, and uh, Kathy is like, "Hey, Aziz, uh, please watch for my shorty, uh, and do not let him to hurt himself." You know, telling me with this beautiful, womanly, uh, nice. A voice and asking me for protection for her husband and that was the time that something clicked in my mind that uh, you know uh, every time we went on a, a rescue mission uh, before going over there Kathy's voice was uh, speaking to me in my mind in my heart and I was uh, remembering uh, Chad and Kathy's uh, children uh, which they were about probably at that time, like uh, six, seven years old, you know, and those innocent children. I was remembering not only about Chad, but also about all the other American colleagues. And from my childhood, I had a de uh, desire and passion for building, development, democracy, peace, freedom of rights for women, for children, for all human beings in Afghanistan. So basically, I was using this opportunity not only as to do uh, the job, but also, you know, voluntarily uh, accepting a lot of risks before uh, even uh, I let all my American colleagues, I was doing the first step in any harmful situation uh, <clears throat> because I was also loving my country and I had a desire and hope yeah. to see Afghanistan one day grow uh, and see the peace and democracy, which actually um, we saw it. And I kind of, I was contributing my uh, social, political, military um, participation into the society 
because, uh, you know, it's uh, one of those things, as they say, that the world was there to build my home and create all kinds of opportunities, employment, and, I mean, you name it, for my people. But why yeah. should I not volunteer and accept risk? And because uh, if you do not accept risk, you cannot progress, you cannot move forward. And Chad and I, uh, we were not only um, uh, business colleagues, we, we became brothers, we became a teammate, and uh, we cared for each other. We kind of became also family member, and we, we were coming from uh, these long uh, um, business operations from the mountains, from the neighboring country or inside Afghanistan, we would directly go to my house. I would call my wife, uh, Khatra, and she would cook us the uh, Kabli Palau, which is the lamb, rice, uh, raisins, almonds, and some seeds. The Chad really loved that. And we would sit, eat the food, and, you know, watch a that's, comedy. That's incredible. Or, and, it, and it's incredible to hear you, um, Aziz, and I'm talking with uh, with Aziz, who is the subject of the book, uh, Saving Aziz, by uh, your your friend and brother, as you describe him. And I can just see um, the brotherly love and hear that in your in your voice in both of you. And, um, and, and as you're describing, Aziz, your love for your country and wanting to see the protections of freedom and liberty and the rights uh, being exercised that, that we still have here in America, um, d- to have that in Afghanistan, I mean, that, that is true patriotism, and you express that so beautifully. So how difficult was it for you to see then the withdrawal of, of, um, of Biden and how all of that happened and the Taliban coming in to your homeland and your country? What was going through your mind at that time? Well, it was really um, chaotic and really heartbroken because we spent almost two decades of uh, uh, the hardships, difficulties, and I saw my country was fully equipped with electricity by the help of the United States uh, uh, presence in Afghanistan, like the help of USAID uh, and U.S. private or other uh, uh, personal uh, or government projects. It helped the Afghan women to go to school. Uh, schools were open for all the girls, uh, men and women, and uh, private universities. They ex- um, uh, imported electricity from Uzbekistan. Uh, uh, mostly uh, all 34 provinces of Afghanistan had electricity, which is very unique in the history of Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, by, by, uh, by using that opportunity, the Afghans were able to have uh, like more than 100 uh, TV channels that were uh, kind of increasing and promoting democracy, raising awareness, bringing people from darkness to the lightness, uh, showing the people how to love each other, how to be connected with God, all these many different uh, uh, social, uh, um, economical programs. Women were uh, finally able to have their own business market in Kabul, in mazar sharif in Herat province, by the help of USAID, um, women owned the businesses. They were uh, released from slavery. They were uh, moved uh, from darkness to the lightness. And there were many so good things happening over there. 
And I was really enjoying it. I was one of those Afghans, the same like the other Afghans, that they contributed their, you know, uh, part uh, politically, socially, um, wow. militarily. And uh, we were really enjoying it. And I was seeing the country going and uh, moving uh, to pretty much what I was uh, desiring from my childhood. But unfortunately, because of the big decision and uh, by President Biden, the, the absolute and total withdrawal of the uh, U.S. military from Afghanistan. Um, it was uh, really heartbreaking. It was a chaos. And uh, to be honest with you, unfortunately, also, we did not have uh, uh, good leaders. Our leaders, the Afghan leaders who were at the top uh, political management, they were just a bunch of cowards and thieves and corrupted, you know, as soon as uh, the withdrawal was announced, uh, they ran away with money to uh, United Arab Emirates. So the country collapsed politically from the top leadership. As soon as the withdrawal was announced by uh, President Biden, I didn't take it serious uh, because uh, the, the country was equipped with a very strong uh, military, which were all the Afghan young uh, men and women uh, that uh, they were, uh, you know, fighting from the deep of their heart, save like me. Uh, they were uh, ready to combat and kind of uh, resist and eliminate the evil of the enemy, not to let them to come and capture our country. But as soon as uh, the top leadership run away. So when there is uh, no top leadership, the middle uh, leadership and the lower management or leadership were not led by MOD because wow. of the agreement uh, that was done between the Taliban, uh, the U.S. envoy and the Pakistani ISI, the intelligence. So uh, uh, they kind of got uh, disappointed and the soldiers were not let to fight. I remember soldiers were crying uh, uh, while uh, they were giving up their guns because their commanders. And, and Aziz, this is just fight. this is incredible. And, and I and I wish I had an, a whole other hour with you because this is incredible on the ground uh, facts that we just don't hear in media. And I'm so thankful for you telling your story and for um, you and, and uh, Chad going on this tour. And so thank you so much um, for your love of, uh, of democracy, of truth, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone, please get this book, Saving Aziz, and listen to the rest of the story. I'm Jenna Ellis. You're listening to Jenna Ellis in the morning, and I will see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.